Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hey everyone, it's Jen. And this is Lindsay. And welcome back to Corpus Delicti, the podcast. We are officially up and rolling and we're hopefully not missing a week this time. (laughs) Yes, and tonight we're bringing you a new series and we're going to call this one Tag Team. So this is our series on team killers, duos, trios, gangs, you name it. May or may not be a few couples in there, but we have already done couples who kill before, so that will not be the main focus. But that's what we're going to go ahead and kick off tonight. So this week's episode takes us back to the U.S. in the 1930s. Now, the Great Depression brought speakeasies, and the general feeling of misery is pretty much throughout the U.S. population. Unemployment is at an all-time high leaving people with a feeling of doing what they have to do to survive. So this is the time where we have mobsters, bootleggers, and high crime rates. And that's becoming normalized in every major city. And so this week, we're going to the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. And this is where two cousins were involved with insurance scams, counterfeiting, and of course, the reason we're here, murder. The total body count is disputed from anywhere between 30 to 50 people. Now, one source got a little too crazy and said it was a thousand, but that really seems unlikely. So this is Herman and Paul Petrillo, and they were Italian immigrants who came to the U.S. sometime around World War I. And during this time, the Italian immigration grew from about 76,000 in 1910 to over 155,000 by the 1930s. Now, this is a very tight-knit community. They share culture, language, food, all of that as we know, really, really good cooking. But they also clashed very heavily with the Irish immigration population. Now, the cousins had their own businesses, and the Depression caused these to crash, which resulted in them coming up with a more, let's say, adventurous way of getting money. Herman was born in 1899 in the province of Campania. This is in Italy, and it's just south of Naples. He immigrated about 1910, and he was employed as a barber. One site, the one that said it was over a 1,000 people, also said he was a spaghetti salesman. That's a niche. It, It definitely is. And he was also known to try his hands at arson. He would come up with people and set their places ablaze and collect some of the payout. Now, Herman was also known as the local star actor in the community. He is definitely a man of many talents. He did run into some men selling counterfeit $5 bills for only $2.50. And he was really impressed about the high quality of the fake bills. And he was like, you know what? 
I'm going to start a new hobby. In fact, some say he worked his way up to be an expert counterfeiter. His cousin, Paul, owned and ran the custom tailor to the classy dressers on East Passyunk Avenue. According to later reports in the Philadelphia Inquirer, the business grew really quickly. It was doing really well. But again, when the Depression came, he was just barely surviving. To make ends meet, he started to run insurance scams right there from the back room of his tailor shop. So what he would do is he would sell these cheap policies with weekly premiums of 50 cents or a dollar. Now, again, keep in mind the times, inflation, long time ago. And the insurance company that he worked with didn't require a medical examination. So he would find these old people, sickly people, and he's going to sell to these, and they were mostly men. So in a way, it sounds like he's doing these people a service, right? It's people who might normally have trouble getting insured. Well, that's not really why he was doing it. So he would sell them this insurance, but what he wouldn't tell them is that he placed himself as the sole beneficiary. So he would put himself down as a brother, an uncle, a cousin, whatever, so that an onlooker wouldn't be too suspicious. But when something would happen to these people, guess who's going to get the payout? And I know things have changed quite a bit since then, but to me, this is a huge red flag for the insurance company. A quick filter and search for duplicates would show him on more than just a handful of policies. And it would show him on the ones that he's actually selling, too. Now, I would imagine these days there's some mechanism to detect that. But to expedite the insurance claims, Herman just didn't want to sit around and wait for these untimely deaths. So he hired thugs to take care of some of the people to expedite the process. He made sure that it looked like an accident and the insurance claim would be doubled the amount than if the person just took their time. Herman would label the scheme as sending them to California. Now, two of the victims, Ralph Caruso and Joseph Arena, were drowned and bludgeoned on fishing trips. Now, a third, John Woloshin, was bludgeoned and ran over repeatedly by a car. And remember, these are supposed to be accidents. So I would highly question the fact that a car went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth as an accident. And a bludgeoning, that's not really an accident either. Now, the drowning, okay, I can see that. But the other two, a little bit questionable. So Herman is already hiding from the cops because they're onto him for this counterfeiting operation. There are warrants out for arson. So Paul and Herman now decide it's time for us to get together, put our skills together. We're going to come up with our own sort of gang and we need this gang to provide us with protection. So they hired thugs. But now what they need is more victims that they can cash in on. So the two cousins would meet and team up with Dr. Morris Bulber, which later created what is now known as the famous Philadelphia Poison Ring scandal. Paul had always been fascinated by magic and was interested in healers and individuals who claimed the power to take a person's pain away. When discussing this interest with the local massage therapist, Paul was excited to learn that the man 
often attended sessions where various healers discussed their practices and was overjoyed that the man actually invited him to attend one. This is where Paul met the Dr. Bulber for the first time. Now, Bulber was a Russian Jewish immigrant. He's about middle-aged. His nickname in the community was Louis the Rabbi. And now he was born in Russia around the late 1800s and was raised by his grandparents. He, too, was really fascinated by magic. So at the age of 12, he read the Kabbalah and became obsessed. In 1905, he took a ship to China to find Reno. Now, by reputation, she is a sorceress, and he lived with her for five years. I I just wonder how that conversation went. He hops on a ship. He goes over there and says, I'm going to live with you. I'm going to learn about you. But And she takes him in. So that, to me, is weird. And she taught him about her potions and how to use healing spirits. He moved to the U.S. in 1911, where he worked as a teacher, and then he opened a grocery store. So like everyone else that we've mentioned in this story, when the Great Depression hits, the store closes, his grocery store, and so he falls back on this skill that he has learned, and he works as a faith healer. This is when he took on the title of doctor. So it's not a medical training. It's just five years with the sorceress Reno from China. Who would go to a doctor who sold you oranges a week ago? But in 1931, this doctor and that of the two cousins, Paul and Herman, would drastically change. So let's start with how it all began. Dr. Bulber and his best friend, Paul, devised what they thought was a foolproof plan when a patient of Dr. Bulber complained that her husband was seeing other women. There's more than one here. And the plan was that Paul should try and date this patient, court her, start a romantic relationship with her. And once that was achieved and he had built up that trust, convince her to kill her cheating husband. Then Paul and this widow could then split the $10,000 life insurance benefits. So Paul strikes up a romantic relationship with her, finally convinced her that murder, not divorce, was the only way that they could be together because your husband's always going to be around. He's going to never stop following us, all that. And it wouldn't hurt to have that life insurance policy so that they could start their life together. So the husband, Anthony Giscabi, was known to be a very heavy drinker. Now, Anthony's wife chose her method of murder in a way that we have actually never talked about on this podcast before. All right, so it is in the middle of winter in Philadelphia. For those who are in the U.S., you know that is pretty darn cold. So what she did is she waited till he passed out one night in the dead of winter. She takes off all of his clothes and moves them under a window. He gets super sick. And he does pass away shortly from illness. So did she kill him or did she just open up the avenue? Does that make sense? Because basically it's he died of hypothermia pretty much because he, he froze to death. Now, it took a little bit of time. He got really ill. But if he had been sober, you know, they're kind of playing it that way. You can't say this was murder. For all you know, he fell on the floor. The wife and Paul received the insurance money, and they were going to split it. But unfortunately, the romance died before the insurance could be half given to her. 
and the couple parted ways. This game worked, and the cousin saw an opportunity to capitalize on it. But there was a problem. The depression is getting worse and worse. This is when they meet Maria Favito, and she was recruited to be the gang's faith healer. Now she practiced fatuchery, and this is a, I'm sorry people who actually practice this, um, but it is a type of magic. It involves chanting and spells and potions. Now she would sell all of this to kind of solve all of life's problems. She was also considered herself a marriage counselor. And to her credible resume for this is having outlived three husbands that unfortunately died accidentally. So that doesn't make you a counselor. That just means you outlived them. They were all accidental deaths. Okay, that's interesting. But that doesn't necessarily make you a marriage counselor just outliving your spouse. So when the cousins meet Maria, they explain their general business model. And Maria's like, yes, I am in. I want to join in on these insurance payouts. And I'll tell you what, if you will let me in on it, I will bring my client list. So together, they would find wives that were either just really gullible, very jaded, and they would charge money for the potions. And the wives would then take these potions and give it to their husbands. Now, the average dose of this love potion, which basically it's just an arsenic spiked drink, cost $300, which is about $5,500 in today's money. So that's a lot of money, period. But when you put that in the context of the depression, it should tell you something that some of these people were so miserable that that's what they were spending their money on. They couldn't afford basics, but by George, we're going to make this work. At least 12 of the widows were eventually arrested and tried for their involvement in the scam. Now, if the wife was initially resistant to the idea of murdering her husband, often the cousins would try to seduce her and win her confidence. Now, it's unclear if most of these knew that the potions were actually arsenic or not, but I'm sure the rumor mill was really working in the gang's favor. I mean, if you didn't like your husband and you could get that money together, you were going to get a really good payout from an insurance if you knew to check the beneficiary line, that is. So Herman and Paul worked up false insurance claims on all of these wives' husbands. And at the time, it's super cheap to get a life insurance policy because a lot of these just did not require a medical exam. The cousins would make themselves as beneficiaries, leaving the widows without a cent. Now, we can confirm that the body count is over 30 at this point. On the side, the gang is running other scams. One involved a local roofer in the area named Lorenzo, and the gang had taken out a policy on him and made a few payments just to make sure that the maximum payout was available. Unfortunately, he accidentally fell to his death off of an eight-story roof. When Ferdinando Alfonsi met an untimely death, that would change the course of the gang altogether. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more in detail right after the break. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today. To, has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, guys, welcome back. And let's just jump into it because here enters our protagonist that will bring down this notorious poison ring that will make staying husbands feel a little bit safer. Now, this protagonist is named George Meyer. Now, George is not associated with the police in any way. He ran an upholstery cleaning company, which was struggling financially. He had heard the two cousins and about their business activities. He was told that the ringleader was Herman, and so he so I said, you know what? I want to get my hand in this. I, I want to be a part of this gang. I want to make some extra money. So I'm going to go talk to him. So Meyer was told that if he were willing to organize the death of a man called Ferdinando Alfonsi, he would be given $500 with an additional $2,500 worth of counterfeit money. Now, just to clarify here, they're not trying to pay him counterfeit money, that's kind of his bonus because then he can go and buy things with the counterfeit money. But Meyer was not really interested in murder. He's like, that's a little much. I'm open to some illegal activities, but that's where I'm going to draw the line. He asked if Herman could just loan him or advance him some money because again, his business is struggling. But the cousins are like, that's not what we do here. We're not lenders. You're either in or you're out. But Meyer thought of another way to make money. He's talked to these guys. They've basically said, here's what we do. You want in? Come on. So Meyer decides, I'm going to take this information to the U.S. Secret Service because Meyer knows that Herman is under suspicion for counterfeiting. So two agents were assigned to Meyer as undercover agents, and they told him if he didn't play along with the murder plot, he wasn't going to get paid. So they're telling him, at this point, you're kind of in it, and we need you to, to stick, stay the course so that we can catch these guys. And if you don't, we're not going to pay you for your information. You're no longer a confidential informant. Now, the Secret Service meet up with Meyer and Herman on August 1st of 1938, and they just went to a local restaurant. Herman didn't want to talk about the plans to take out Alfonsi in the middle of a public space. So they go outside and sit in the car. Now, Meyer told Herman that his two friends, a.k.a. the undercover Secret Service people, were just released from prison, and they were charged with murder, but they had gotten out from, like, good behavior. So now it's time to talk about Alfonsi. Herman suggested that they take Alfonsi to Jersey, to the Jersey coast, and to drown him. 
they could simply leave his clothing at the scene and it would just really look like an accident. But one of the agents started talking about counterfeit money and how he wants some, that he needs some. Now remember, Secret Service doesn't just protect the president. They also are the legal backing for the treasury. So they're responsible for all money flow. Now, one of the agents is trying to convince Herman to give him fake money to buy a car. And they would use the car to either like run him over and then leave the body on the side of the road. But Herman is a businessman after all. And he's like, no, we're not going to spend money, even if it's fake money, on something that we don't have to. That could we could be buying something else. So we could just steal a car but I'm not handing over any money, real or fake. Now, this is where the conversation ended because they're starting to butt heads a little bit. They continued to try and bargain over how the over the best way to kill this man for a few weeks before finally coming to an agreement. So they ultimately decided that they would steal a car, but Herman would sell Phillips some fake money. Now, Phillips is one of the two undercover agents who's with them who Meyer has said, these are my two buddies. They just got out of prison. They're really good at this. They want in too. So it's just trying to make it seem as legit as possible. So Herman reached into his wallet. He pulled out a counterfeit $5 bill. And Phillips was like, wow, this is really good. This is a really good fake. And I want to make arrangements with you to buy more. I want $200 worth of these bogus bills. Now, Herman wanted to take some time to think about it and said, give me two weeks to consider. Because again, you got to be careful when you're in these big rings like this, because you never know who is the mole kind of like this. So let me think about it. What's the risk here? Is it worth it to me? So the Secret Service dude was over the moon because now he figures he could be the man to take down this huge counterfeit operation. Herman gets a little suspicious because that's all Phillips is pushing. You know, all he wants is his fake money. He doesn't want to do anything. So Herman takes about the two weeks of thinking and he just completely disappears. Meyer dresses up like a construction worker. He goes to Alfonsi's home just to kind of check on him. You know, he's not feeling good about this whole murder for hire thing. And the story that he was going to present that... Like, hey, look, I'm here. Can I do anything? Can I fix anything in or around the house? But when Alfonsi's wife answered the door, she declines work because her husband is super sick and he can't even get out of bed. Meyer goes to Phillips and says, look, they've probably already started this. He, he's probably a dead man. And if they didn't spend so much time on the fake money, they could have prevented this. So it looks like Herman just went another way and hired a hitman because he got tired of waiting. So Phillips called together several agents and the group posed as insurance representatives and they go to check on Alfonsi. When they get there, Alfonsi's pupils were bulging and he couldn't move or speak. So the agents call the Philadelphia police. So in the meantime, Herman calms down because remember he's getting a little nervous that he's being watched, but after some time goes by and nothing happens, he decides, okay, I, I will take the money. So he tells Meyer, says, hey, I will sell the counterfeit money to your friend. So a meeting was arranged at a local bus stop. And later that day, Meyer and Phillips, so again, this is the agent and the man who owned the upholstery cleaning business. They met him there. Now, Herman gives 
Phillips an envelope which contained 40 counterfeit $5 bills. To make him feel better about himself, Phillips is pretending the men still want the job because he's trying to get back into Herman's good graces, saying that, yeah, he is a hitman, he's a murderer, and not interested in counterfeit money. And Phillips asked Herman if they still wanted Alfonsi taken out. Herman just smiles and said that they didn't have to worry about it anymore. He's in the hospital, and he's not coming out. So the Secret Service finally focus on something other than the fake money and reach out to the local PD. They tell the PD the whole background story and say, hey, you need to go check on this guy, Alfonsi. When the Philadelphia PD sends investigators to the hospital, they immediately order the doctor to take a urine sample. And it turns out this test comes back indicating very large quantity of arsenic. So maybe this is the love potion. Maybe they got Alfonsi's wife in on the ring. So the district attorney was brought in and quickly pressed charges on the cousins for attempted murder. But Alfonsi did end up dying a couple weeks later, and at that point, it was upgraded to murder. So they bring Herman in for questioning, and they're thinking, this guy is never going to talk. That's how these big rings work. But surprisingly, he is just an open book. He He starts talking and doesn't really stop. He gives the DA a quite mind-boggling list of victims and conspirators, claiming that his cousin, Paul, along with Morris Bulber, were the masterminds behind the entire operation. And Herman said that all but three of the victims had been killed with arsenic. But a confession is one thing. Now it's up to the DA to prove all of the others. They had lab results from Alfonsi's doctor, but not from any of the other victims. So they file and go to trial for Alfonsi's first, and they plan on charging the other crimes once they have a good case. On February 2nd, 1939, the grand jury indicted Herman and Paul, Stella Alfonsi, so maybe the wife was in on it, and Maria, the chick that was selling the potions. Maria's husband was the first to be exhumed, and her late husband's autopsy also, surprise, surprise, revealed a large quantity of arsenic in his system. These are those apparent accidental deaths, too, by the way, because remember, she was a marriage counselor. The New York Times reported on February 17, 1939, that the grand jury reached a verdict in only seven and a half minutes. So they weren't playing around. Herman Petrillo's trial began on March 13, 1939, in Philadelphia's City Hall, and the presiding judge, Harry McDevitt, who was not related to the DA, who was Vincent McDevitt, was one of the most feared judges in all of Pennsylvania. A defense attorney's worst nightmare, the judge was known in legal circles as Hanging Harry, so if you get him as your judge, you're hanging. Even though Petrillo's lawyer, Milton Leidner, was a close friend of the judge, the defense attorney did not expect any leniency at all. March 13, 1939, Thomas Sheeran, an agent for the John Hancock Mutual Life, was the first to testify. Now, he told the jury how one of the cousins had taken him to see Alfonsi on February 9th. Now, the insurance guy testifies that when Alfonsi refused to sign the policy, one of the cousins instructed the agent 
against company policy and leave the paperwork with him. So he kind of strong armed him. He's like, look, this guy's not going to sign it. You leave it with me. I will make sure he signs it. Luigi Sissioni, an agent for Mutual Life Insurance, told the jury that he had also helped the cousins get insurance on the ailing Alfonsi. Now, afterwards, Secret Service informant Meyer and the cover agents Phillips consecutively took the stand and testified about the cousins' attempts to have them kill Alfonsi. So this is pretty much open shut. You've got the insurance company. You've got the undercover Secret Service agents. You've got Meyer, who first approached them for extra money. Now, a local druggist then testified that the cousins approached him on numerous occasions in an attempt to get typhoid germs and similar poisons. Next, a physician gives testimony in regards to the quantity of arsenic found in the autopsy of Alfonsi. So the prosecution is going for gold. They are hitting every single aspect in this murder case. And meanwhile, the defense doesn't really have much of anything that's hard to go up against. Now, attorney Leidner briefly attempted to discredit the state's witnesses. Again, that's really all he could do at this point. But then he quickly relented when he realized that he's only furthering the damage done by the DA. So Petrillo then took the stand and spent three hours and 15 minutes denying all of the accusations Again, at that point, what's the point? And on March 21st of 1939, the jury foreman, 42-year-old Margaret Skeen, read the verdict to the court. Bet you can all guess where this is going. He was guilty, and they wanted the death penalty. Herman is mad now, and he flat-out yells, and I apologize for the language to come here since we don't normally on the show, but he yells, you lousy bitch bitch before lunging toward the jury foreman. Not a good way to try and plead your case. Now, thank goodness, before he could reach Mrs. Skeen, guards were able to restrain him and the judge banged his gavel in an attempt to bring order back to the courtroom. He was then sentenced to die in the Pennsylvania's electric chair. Following the verdict, his defense attorney stood and apologized to the court. His defense attorney says, I'm sorry. I wouldn't have defended this man if I'd known he was such a scum. Wow. (laughs) To the point, as a defense attorney, you have everything the prosecution has. You knew he was a scum when you first took it on. Right. Let's just be honest. Yeah. After the trial, investigators stated they would exhume 70 bodies and examine them for signs of arsenic. So soon, now that the ringleader's going down, Here comes the rest. Maria goes to trial. Not to be outdone by Herman's trial theater, she stopped her own trial in the middle of it. And she goes, you know what? I'm guilty. I did three counts of murder. And that includes both her stepson and her own husband. But she did say in the middle of court, I might as well just get over with it. Let them send me the chair. What do I have to live for? Wow. So... To save his own skin from the electric chair, Herman then says, okay, well, I guess that I'm going to cooperate with the prosecution then. So by May 21st, 1939, 21 arrests were made in connection with the poison ring. Now, that's a lot because we've only talked about a few of the key players, but that's how many people are involved in this to make this work. 
As the investigation went on, detectives discovered that Herman and Bulber ran a matrimonial agency, which apparently was created to find new husbands for the widows of their victims. So they would trick these women into killing their husbands. Then they would find them new husbands to keep the whole thing going. It's absolutely wild. So upon finding a new mate, the widows would marry. Then guess what? They would take out life insurance policies on them. And then afterwards, it was up to the members of the ring to do away with the insured and collect the money. That is wild. Now remember, yeah, remember our doctor, not so much a doctor. Well, he pled guilty to murder, possibly hoping that his plea would earn him a lesser sentence. And this is Bulber, right? Yes, it is Bulber. His plan worked, and he eventually was sentenced to life in prison. Now, a few months later, in September of 39, Paul also pled guilty. He was sentenced to die in the electric chair. And in the end, 13 men and women, besides Bulber and the cousins, were convicted or pled guilty to first-degree murder. All of these convicted killers served long sentences, and the shortest one not being less than 14 years. So, that being said, everyone served at least 15 years in prison. Paul did die in the electric chair on March 31, 1941. Seven months later, in October, Herman met the same fate. He died in prison. 13 years later, in February of 54, Dr. Not Dr. Bulber died of natural causes while waiting his third parole petition. So District Attorney Vincent McDevitt went on to be really successful. So he left service in 1947, and after that, he became vice president of the Philadelphia Electric Company, which a lot of people think is a little bit ironic because he went from putting people in the electric chair to running the electric company. Anyway, so between this story and the story that we talked about during the Depression where the person resorted to cannibalism, Desperate times apparently do call for desperate measures, which is quite unfortunate. All right, so guys, we have a lot coming up in the next few weeks. We are recording with Bob Ruff for one of his podcasts, and we are super, super excited. The podcast is called True Crime Binge. I think we mentioned it on the last episode, but we are recording on Tuesday. We actually don't know when it drops yet, but we'll keep you posted. And we're going to be talking about Rocky's case with him, which, you know, I realized today we covered Rocky's case in five parts. They were long parts. Some of them were over an hour. And we are trying to condense Rocky's story into 30 to 40 minutes. And it is hard. There's just so much. So Lindsay is amazing. She did this little... I'm not going to say little. She did this summary that so we can just get refreshed on the facts because we get so passionate about it and we get honed in on the smallest of details with Rocky's case. And we needed to take a step back and just look at the totality of the case. And her summary is four pages. Yeah. That's just, and that was and that was a struggle. Like Because all of it is so important in his case, and every little detail does matter in his case, and it really paints the picture of what 
he has so wrongfully been through. But I think we've got it to where we can recap it, talk through it with someone who hasn't heard it before, and hopefully get some good perspective. And if you, not on true crime binge, but if you know Bob Ruff, his main podcast is Truth and Justice, where he covers wrongfully convicted cases. So I think it'll be really interesting to talk to him about this. And then the most extraordinary, amazing thing is happening. <laughs> in March. In March, we are talking to Morph. Woohoo! We are going, we have been asked and graciously took time and consideration to say yes, albeit <laughs> it took probably three nanoseconds for us to say yes. And this one is beyond bizarre. So if you know Morph, he has so many amazing podcasts and everyone is great, but this one is beyond bizarre bizarre where other podcasts come on and present wild cases, just the most out there thing that you've ever heard, basically. So, But until then, guys, we are super excited. Don't forget patreon.com. We drop a Patreon episode where we have a live event at it's either Wednesday or Thursday, the last Wednesday and Thursday of every month. Um, we've been doing this since pretty much COVID hit. And yeah. it's just a way to to give back since we're not doing live events. We're not traveling. Um, we just wanted to really touch base with you guys. And we have so much fun on those. Yeah, they're generally an hour long. Half is a story that we do with you. If you want to chime in, ask questions, throw in a fact that you know, that's awesome. Then the second half is just chilling and hanging out and getting to know each other. And it's always a lot of fun. And then we post them after in video and audio form. So if you miss it, but you still want to hear the case, you can always do that as well. Or, or watch us, which I sometimes I... Not always recommended. No, no, no. Because there are days where I forget about hair and makeup. And it's just, it's all natural. <laughs> That's okay. It's all natural. There was one, <laughs> yeah, there was one, I think it was like around Thanksgiving where you and me were both in pajamas and like, it was, yeah, neither of us tried. <laughs> it was rough. But um, definitely come as you are. There is no dress code. We, it is a great conversation. Oh, and one last thing, don't forget, we still have our merch store. And if you want to join our Facebook group, that's where all the fun stuff happens. That's where we post our questions. Please answer the questions to get into the group. If you do not answer the questions, it is an automatic hard denial because we do not let uh, bots in, or at least we try not to. And we actually have a really great group of people in there. Yeah, we do. And that's Corpus Delicti Discussion Group. It's pretty easy to find, but please answer the questions. But I feel like we do have a good community in there. People get along well and have gotten to kind of know each other. And as far as the merch store, if you look in the show notes, the link is in there. It's a long link, so it's easier just to go to the show notes. But we've got t-shirts, hoodies, hats, all sorts of fun stuff. Shower curtains. There are actually shower curtains. I thought about getting one. I did not. I, I, I would have, but they're like $90. And I was like, I love the podcast, but I don't love it $90 yeah. that much. But, and I wouldn't know what bathroom to put it in. Like if I put it in my kids' bathrooms, it's going to scar them. But the mugs are pretty awesome. I will say I've had my Corpus Delicti coffee mug and it's, to me, it's the perfect shape. It's got, it's a great 12 ounces. So it fits a good cup of coffee. Yeah. And I've got one of the travel ones and it's held up really well too. So that is always there. And I guess that's about it, huh? 
I guess that is. But until then, you know what we said to Felicia. Bye. Bye.